Well, hi. Good to see you. Uh, got a chance to do the, uh, the, the ministry school that you guys do here, and they invited me back. I'm shocked. So uh, great to see you. Um, appreciate getting a chance to spend an evening with you here. We're going to be in the book of Hosea. What I'm going to do is um, I'm going to overview it a little bit. We just finished it back home at Cyprus, and uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to teach the Bible back home at, at the fellowship there. And one of the things that we do on Sunday nights, we're always going through the Old Testament. Right now, we happen to be in the Minor Prophets. And uh, what we've noticed over the, the years of doing this, unlike with the, the New Testament, which is where we get most of our doctrine as a New Testament church, we hear a lot about what I would say is theology, things about the nature of God. Prophecy is all throughout the Old Testament. But if I was to try to categorize what it does more than anything else, it talks about the human condition. And the one thing that we can know is that things have not changed a whole lot since then. And I want to make some application to the church when it comes to walking with God, knowing what he expects of us, and then how it is that that is always a war within our minds of knowing what the word says, what God expects of us, and then what our actions are like. And what we have in the Old Testament is caution after caution after caution of doing things our own way or thinking that it's maybe just not quite as serious as God says. So there's a real danger in that. We see that it happens here with Israel, and we'll look a little bit at the history of it, and then we're going to go through some of the chapters and pick out some of the highlights, and I guess you could even say some of the lowlights of it. And, uh, and you'll find that things have not changed a whole lot. There's an old saying about the more that things change, the more they remain the same. Are you familiar with that, uh, familiar with that saying? Boy, there's a lot of truth to that. So, book of Hosea, if I was to ask you what is it, many of us, just on the cursory knowledge of it, we would say, oh, that's the book where God had told Hosea to marry the prostitute woman, right? Right? Yeah, that's right. This is that, well, I do this back home, and I always ask questions expecting an answer, and I never get them. But X doesn't do that here. I found it out when I was sharing with School of Ministry. So with that, turning to the book of Hosea, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together in your word. We're asking, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would open our eyes to understanding. And though we look at history specific to a group of people, yet there is so much that we can learn from this, that the church should be aware. We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us this evening through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the book of Hosea, and we look at the minor prophets uh, as a whole, major minor prophets, whichever you prefer, they're either going to be speaking to primarily the northern tribes, the ten tribes, or the, or the southern two. Now, Jonah's a little bit different. He was dealing with the people at Nineveh, kind of the same group of people that were going to ultimately come and judge the people that, that Hosea was talking to. Now, as I was going through this, we've been in Israel earlier this year. And we were in, how many of you have visited Israel? Been through there? Great. How many of you got a chance to tour through Dan in the north there? Dan, okay. How many of you guys saw the place where Jeroboam set up the high places and the golden calf and the altar where that all had happened? How many of you saw that? Okay, a few of you. Now, there were two places primarily where this kind of worship took place. It was in Dan in the north and Beth El in the south. 
And the reason that that happened was because Jeroboam was afraid that the people of Israel in the north would move down into the south to be close to the temple and that he would lose those people from the north to the south. And so he gave them an alternate place to worship. Of course, it wasn't the worship of Jehovah. It wasn't the worship of the God of the law. It was the worship of the gods that they had served in Egypt. And so as I'm going through this book back home, all of a sudden it just occurs to me, it kind of dawns on me out of nowhere, there never should have been a northern ten tribes and there never should have been a southern two. There should have been the twelve tribes that were there when Solomon went home and he left it with Rehoboam. And I find it an interesting thing just where we are in church history and how there's a very interesting repeat that's going on. Now, when I first came to the Lord, it's been almost 30 years ago, I can remember walking into the church, and what I can't tell you a whole lot about was the demographics. I don't know what the, the makeup of, of, uh, of race was. I don't know what the age was. I don't know if it was a young church, an old church. None of that mattered. What I knew was that for the first time in my life, I was hearing the Word of God, and it was changing me. I was becoming a transformed person because of the Word of God. And so what I'm hearing now is that is antiquated. Now, I, I know that I'm speaking at Xavier's church, so I'm, I'm in safe company here. I also know that, that he is warning your flock here, the flock of which you are a part, that we don't want to go where wherever the winds of doctrine are, are blowing, we stay with the Word of God, what we've known all along. So what had happened with these people here. It serves as just a reminder that we should be very, very careful. Again, why did the nation split? If you're familiar with it, great. If you're not, we won't turn to it. You can read it yourself. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 12. And it's where we find that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is left the kingdom. And of course, he wonders, well, what do I do from here? And if he thinks he has it bad, look at what Solomon said. How do I follow that act? David was my father. Remember how he cried out to God, how do I do this? I don't know how to lead them in, lead them out and bring them back in. My father is David. How do you follow that? Well, Rehoboam had it in much lesser of a way because David is the measure by which they were all, he was the standard rather that they were all measured by. Well, Rehoboam starts to hear the counsel of people. And so he gathers the elders and they give him wise counsel. Hey, look, your father was a little bit heavy-handed in the latter part of his life. If you want to endear yourself to the people, ease up a little bit. But then he goes to the youth, and the youth tells him that, you know, you, you really don't want to look weak, so double down on everything and go harder at them than your father. And what did it do? It split the nation. And so the northern ten tribes are an offshoot of that, and Jeroboam was made the king over those northern ten tribes. And if you have visited Dan or you have visited Bethel, you will find that the very first king of the northern ten tribes led the nation into idolatry. And we wonder why the condition of the nation is what it is, as Hosea writes to them. So there's all the backstory. Now, I'm getting older. In fact, I'm using the Bible that has larger print in it. If I was using my other one, I'd be wearing glasses. So, yeah, I'm getting older, and I don't have a problem with youth. I used to be one, and I liked it when I would get a, a chance to give my input if it was asked. So I have nothing, there's, to me, there's nothing wrong with youth, so long as that youth is in line with where the leadership is leading, assuming that that leadership is correct. Well, what we have here, and the birth of the northern ten tribes, was because the man that was going to take charge 
didn't heed the counsel of the men that were still hearing God's voice. Instead, they started to heed, or he started to heed, the words of people who didn't understand the heart and the mind of God. So here we are, fast forward hundreds of years, and now we have the latter part of the northern ten tribes. Assyria is at the door, and they are about to be taken away. Now, if you read the book of Hosea, you're going to find that as God speaks these judgments against Israel, there is the opportunity for them to repent. But it is a foregone conclusion. God knows that they will not, and so they're going to be taken away into their captivity. Unlike the southern two tribes that were taken away to Babylon, they came back. Remember, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, rebuild the temple and all the rest of that. When it comes to Assyria coming and wiping out the northern ten tribes, they never made it back. They were never brought back into the land. Now that sounds so final and so sad and everything else, but I want to point out to you as we glean through this, there are some times that God says, I'm going to restore you to the land. And the wonderful thing about that is to this day, that has still not happened. So in case it could ever be seen that maybe for some reason I am trying to make the church fit the book of Hosea, I think that replacement theology or the idea that the church has replaced Israel is a heresy. And it disavows and it disregards the clear teaching of the word of God. He is not only doing something in Israel, he will continue to do that work. And we will see it through the millennium. And it will be glorious. But boy, can you learn some things about complacency and apathy and compromise through the Old Testament and this book, this book in particular. In chapter 1, what I'm going to do is I'm going to overview a bit of it with you. We're just going to go through some of the sections of this and make some application and make some, you know, take a, a few views of it and see how we can, can look at it as far as uh, the church is concerned. First of all, I want to say that as we look at this as being a book that really does pronounce judgment, it tells them it's coming. It tells them why, it tells them how, we'll look at that. I want you to notice that in chapter 1, in verse 11, we read this. The children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day in Jezreel. Now, I want us to remember that everything that I'm about to read as we go through this book some of it is just sad because they have every opportunity to return to the Lord. And they will refuse to do it. History records that as the Assyrians came in, they just wiped it out. And there was nothing left of it. They were taken captive, kind of assimilated into Assyria. That's what took place. But I want you to notice that in the very first chapter, when God says, I want you to marry a woman of harlotry, probably future her harlotry was, but that he was to redeem her back when she goes to that place. But it speaks about her infidelity to the marriage. And it was going to be a metaphor for the spiritual infidelity and harlotry of the nation of Israel. And so that is the whole background of the book, but it only takes the halfway, halfway through the first chapter or towards the latter part of the first chapter that God says, by way of reminder, I will reestablish you. Even though there is going to be a time of judgment and taking away, God is not a God who casts away forever, and he will finish this work in them. Now, in, verse, or in chapter 2, let's take a look at verse 9. Speaking about this judgment, he says, Therefore I will return and I will take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. And so God was the covering. He was the one who gave her everything. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 6 in a moment 
and 7. Um, and what you're going to find is that everything that they had, they had because God had given it to them and had provided for their needs. And so what he's saying now is that since you have rejected me, you can't expect to still have all of the favor that comes along with this relationship. And so it was a warning to them that they did not heed. And so he says, now I will uncover, verse 10, her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will be able to deliver from my hand. I also will cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. So they still had this external religion that was going on. They kept the feast. They did the things of the law. But it was a matter of the heart that was the problem here. So for the church, first application. We may know a lot about the Bible. We may know a lot about Jesus. We may know a lot about all the doctrines of the church. But if it is just nothing more than head knowledge and it is not based upon relationship that manifests from the heart, if everything that we do on the outside is not based upon what God has done on the inside, then it is externalism and it is religion. God has a problem with that. Because as they are committing harlotry and idolatry, they're still keeping their religious things intact. And God says, I'm not going to play games. I won't do both. So as we see, I believe the church compromised more and more merging more and more things with the world. And X talks about it all the time, the kind of mystical um, prayer practices and meditation that's taking place and kind of bending a little bit of the edges of doctrine. And, well, let's not be too dogmatic about this, that, and the other thing. Look, if the Word says it, we're to hold to it. That's the simple, that's the simple measure of a church. Do we believe the Word of God? And do we apply it based on what it says. They knew all these things. They knew the law, and they had yet merged all of this paganism with the church. And now we see how it plays out further. Now, in verse 13, it says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals, these are the false gods, to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and her jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. Well, isn't that interesting? Because he was just saying, I'm not even going to participate in all of the religious things because she's gone after other gods and yet she's forgotten me. So in an outward way, still doing all the religious stuff, but as far as the back and forth between her and the Lord, there was none of it. And this is, again, a caution to the church. Now, again, I'm taking into account who I'm talking to here. You could be doing a ton of other things on a Thursday night, but you're here at church because you know that the Word of God is going to be taught. That's why you assemble, you worship, you fellowship with like-minded brothers and sisters who have this common thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is revealed through His Word and speaks to us by His Holy Spirit. That's why you're here. So because of that, we are able to say, this is always good as a reminder to us that we stay on the straight and narrow because what we have here is a historical record. It's called the book of Hosea and the, the prophets are all the same way. They will give the caution because God is not going to play second. He's not going to allow the worship of him to be shared with another God. He does not recognize them. So it is to the church. We should know that our God is holy and that our God desires relationship with us, but he will not allow us to be divided in our allegiance to another God. This is exactly what had taken place. They had their religion, 
but they had left God behind. Now, chapter 3, look at the last couple of verses there. It says in chapter 3, verse 4, it makes kind of a summary, and it does lead into chapter 4, a very kind of a, an iconic chapter because of what it says. But look at how it, it segues into chapter 4. Verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 3 says this, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without sacrifice, without sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Now, that means that once they're taken away into Assyria, the days are going to come when they won't be able to worship like they've been able to. Though it was not heartfelt, it was still going through the motions. The day's going to come when Assyria takes them away. They won't have a temple. They won't have high places to worship at. They won't have any of those things. They're going to be taken away in their captivity and no provision will be made for them. So they're going to go a long time. And in fact, that long time is still in place today. Okay? They're not in a place of worship. Some have started since Israel's come back into the land, but this will never hit its stride until the millennium. That's when this will really begin to take place. But look at what he says, because here's the promise. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return, and they will seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, in the midst of judgment, here God says, however... The work that I want to do in my people will not be thwarted by them. There will come a day. And I don't know about you, but I am comforted by that. That tells me about the nature of God. That tells me that when it comes to my salvation in the person of Jesus, I didn't deserve any of this and neither did any of the rest of you. But it was his desire to redeem us back. And so he put everything in motion to make that take place because he is patient. He is loving and he makes a way. To those that will call upon him, there is always hopefulness. So, he says, this is what I will do. But now back to the reality of things. Chapter 4 says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. So hearing was an issue. Now, we do this with our kids all the time, right? Are you listening to the words that I'm saying? Now listen up. Hear what I'm saying to you. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Maybe you have those kind of kids that you'll say a bunch of things that, yeah, yeah, I got you. Okay, great. Repeat back to me everything I just told you. I'll wait. Fingers on the desk and they're just, uh, uh, you, you weren't listening. You did not hear what I said. So you have to repeat yourself. Well, here's basically what he's done. Now, his way of saying, hear this, I'm going to bring a charge against you. Now, you're going to notice something as I point them out, what's already taken place. And by the time that you get to verse 12 of chapter 4, he talks about the idolatry. We'll look at some of those things. So they were already worshiping other gods, and they had made with their hands the implements of that worship. So they've already broken the first two commandments here. They're about to break another five. Look at what he says. I'm going to bring a charge against the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. That is a statement. Now, that's speaking about the nation of Israel, and that was a statement of fact. Brothers and sisters, I am here to tell you that if you were to survey the condition of the church as a whole, I believe that is a true statement of the modern church as well. Okay? There's a lot of window dressing. There's a lot of stuff taking place. Lots of amen, hallelujah. But there is not a lot of the word of God going over the pulpits of America. 
And the reason why is because it could very quickly empty out the big mega churches. So instead, what do we do? Let's entertain the people. Let's make them happy. Let's make them comfortable and all the rest. Look at what he says. There's three things that are indictments. There is no truth, no mercy, no knowledge of God. So violence had started to come in, but the other two things are dealing with their relationship with God because no truth. Boy, are we fortunate as the church because we serve the true and the living God who is the personification of truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? That same Jesus from John chapter 14 by John chapter 17 before he goes to be with the Lord said, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We see it over and over and over again through the scripture. So we have everything that is necessary. Now they had it. Theirs was a problem of hearing. They had the law. They had the prophets. They just stopped listening. And it led to their violence. And then it also led to the other thing, their knowledge of God about his nature. So when a prophet would come to town and said, hey, judgment's about to to fall, they didn't even know the nature of the God who makes good on his promises, whether good or bad. He's not to be trifled with. And they didn't even have that knowledge of him. So again, survey the churches and go in and ask people that, that call themselves Christians and go to church. Would you please explain to me how it is that you know that you will go to heaven? And how many people that you might witness to and you identify them and they identify themselves rather as Christians and you say, great, how is it that you plan on getting to heaven? What do we hear all the time? Well, I'm a good person. Really, that's not the question that I asked you. I'm glad that you're a good person. Great, good for you. How are you planning on getting to heaven? And they're struck to give you an answer. Now, I don't as much fault the people as I fault the pastors because they're the ones that are dishing out the sweets but they're never dishing out the word of God and so people are ignorant. What do you think was happening here? Same thing. The priests are in focus here. The people are a reflection of their leadership. Now again, I'm speaking to a church that has a pastor that if I lived in Pasadena, wasn't pastoring myself, I'd be here right out the pews with you guys. I love your pastor. I'm challenged by him. He blows my mind. I love him. And you're blessed to have him. Now, here's what he says after that. Look at these are the five things that they do after that. By swearing, taking oaths, or using the name of the Lord in vain. By lying, which you will not bear false witness. By killing, thou shalt not murder. And by stealing, you won't covet what your brother has. Right? And then by committing adultery, you won't covet your husband or your, your, another man's wife. There's that, you know, adultery. That's five of the Ten Commandments. And they're already into idolatry and serving other gods. There are seven for ten in the first four chapters. And they've already done the other ones, sure. Now, these are the people of God that we are talking about here. And again, survey the church. We know the nature of God. He's pure and he's holy. And yet, how often are we given license over the pulpits to live any way that we want to? Oh, we can't really take the Bible as literal. We weren't there. We don't know who these people were. We hear that about, you know, Paul was a misogynist and he was a sexist. Have you heard people say that? That blows my mind. So isn't it funny how people love to use the Bible to give a reason why they believe what they believe, but as soon as you show them something in the Word that counters that, then all of a sudden they're agnostic when it comes to the Bible. Pick a side. Well, here we have the same problem with these people here. There was a lack of knowledge. There was a lack of an understanding of who God was because there was a lack of truth. And that truth 
was absent because of the priests who he addresses here. Now, notice what he says. They break. After they've committed adultery, they've done these five things plus the other two that are implied. They break all restraint. Now, again, and I know that this gets me in trouble in some places, not here because I know your pastor. We have churches that are sanctioning same-sex marriage, doing all kinds of things that the Bible clearly calls an abomination. Now, it's not my opinion and it's not his. The Bible's very, very clear on this. Now, if you will no longer look at the Scripture as your authority, you will cast off all restraint. That's what it says that they did here, right? They break all restraint. How is that manifested? Bloodshed upon bloodshed. The image that's here, no sooner do they murder one person than the blood hasn't yet pooled that they murder the person standing right next to them. It had become that perverse. But it shows what anybody is capable of when you play external religion but don't even know the God that it's supposed to represent. So, I'm not yelling at you guys. What I'm trying to do is say, let me stir up in you that you are a small group within what we call Christianity that looks at the Word of God as authoritative and accurate and pure and perfect. Therefore, it has the ability to speak on every matter of faith. And we don't need to apologize for that. Therefore, verse 3 says, the land's going to mourn. The land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and even the fish in the sea will be taken away. So thorough will be the destruction at the hands of the Assyrians that you won't even be able to recognize the place. And this is a promise that was made, if you want to remember, back in Second Chronicles when they were uh, dedicating the temple, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, when... You know, Solomon is doing his horse trading and says, Hey, God, we built you this great house. Will you come and stay here? Yes, I will. Okay, but I will stay there unless you rebel against me. And then Solomon says, Well, if we rebel against you, but if we repent, will you return? Yes, I will return. But if you rebel, I'm going to remove my presence. In fact, so much so that when people walk by here, they're going to go, How did this happen? And that's exactly what happened through the history of Israel. People would look back and how could such a mighty nation under David and under Solomon be a place of this kind of of just overthrow and terror? Well, we're reading why it happened. So look at what else it says. Now, verse 4, it says, Let no man contend or rebuke another. Why? Because you're all in the same boat. You're all just as guilty. So nobody has the moral high ground to correct anyone else. Isn't that an amazing thing? We're at the point now where people don't even want to say, well, who are you? Don't judge me. Isn't that funny from Matthew 7? There's a picture that I love. I send it out all the time. And it's from Matthew chapter 7. If you're not familiar with that, it starts out. The first two words of Matthew 7 says, judge not. Then it's lest ye be judged. I have this great picture. It's of a, a page on the Bible. It was done with you know one of those uh, with a computer program, and it just says "judge not," and then everything else is scribbled out in black. That's how the world likes to read Matthew seven. They don't want to read the rest of it. You can go ahead and judge conduct. You can't judge hearts. That's God's domain. But if a person is doing something that is clearly unbiblical, it's not wrong for correction to come from that. If the word says it, the word speaks louder than anything. So here they are. Now, let no one contend or rebuke another. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. You're always arguing with people, but the priests are just as corrupt. 
Look at what he says. Therefore you will stumble in the day, and the prophet also will stumble with you in the night, and you will destroy your mother. That means your, your nation. Because of that, the nation will go into servitude, and it will be taken away by the Assyrians. Look at he says. We've all heard this verse quoted. My people are destroyed. Why? For, because of, their lack of knowledge. And because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests before me. Notice who he's addressing here. The leadership, the teachers, making a modern application, the pastors. They're the ones that are in focus here. Because if they had been faithful to their commission that God had given them, this wouldn't have happened to the nation. So he goes on, because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. That's your posterity. Your children will be raised in the Assyrian Empire and not in the land that God gave to you as an inheritance. What a sad thing that is to say. And look at what he says here. In verse 7, boy, think about those churches that tell you you're a child of God. You should be rich. You should have this and you should have that. Health and wealth and cars and possessions and all that stuff. And he said, look, read it with me. What does verse 7 say? The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. Start to trust in the stuff you got. No longer looking to the God who supplies your needs. I got stuff. And you become so filled with pride and so filled with your possessions, you take your eyes off the Lord. The more they got, the more that they increased in their sin against me. And it led them to the place of apathy and trusting in something other than the Lord who gave them everything. Now, as we read on, it says in verse 8, they eat up the sin of my people and they set their heart on iniquity. This is the priest's. They pass it off. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. God's a forgiving, loving God. Hey, we're under the covenant of grace. We're not under that, that you know, killer God of the Old Testament. You hear that all the time. Hey, you know, when it comes to relationships, you know, we love each other. And so that's all that, you know, God's a God of love. And so love is all that matters. So we, we cast out. I was having this conversation with some people from church back home. And people, I, actually, this was a quote from one of the people. Well, I know what God was like in the Old Testament, but he was really judgy back then. But now he's a God of grace. Also, he's had a change of heart. So he was really serious about holiness back then, but now he's the hippie Jesus and everything is cool. Right? Peace. So long as you just love each other, it's all good. That's not what the scripture says. The Bible tells me that the God, is the same, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he changes not, neither does his attitude towards conduct and holiness and righteousness. He is still as perfect as he ever was. And how much more so are we expected to be like that, considering that we have the indwelling spirit of the living God if we're born again, who's telling you this is right and that's wrong, and that, it, that interprets the scripture for us, who leads us in all truth, as Jesus said in John 16. We have no excuse. So we see in verse 9, And it shall be like the people like the priest. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. Wow, is that a frightening thought? There's no difference between the leadership and the people because there's a reciprocal way. If one's corrupt and the other one allows themselves to be corrupt, they will all be corrupt. Now notice how he says that, the reward for, and I will reward them for their deeds. Now, we think, okay, but we're under grace. So we won't be rewarded for our deeds. Well, it tells me in, in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, right? 
But what's the counter to that? But the gift of God is eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Romans 6.23, we know the verse. The wages of sin is death. You want to know what, what sin provides? If you're going to be paid the wages of your actions, that's sinfulness, it's eternal separation from God. It's death. However, if you want to receive a gift, not what you've earned, you want to get something that's given to you that you didn't earn, eternal life in Jesus. Take your choice. Well, to them, they were paid back for what they had done. I am grateful, though sorrowful, that my sin caused Jesus to die. But I am grateful that he was willing to pay that price that I could be redeemed back to him. So who am I to trifle with his word and say, it's okay. God will just wink and nod at your sin because he's a God of grace. It's not what the scripture teaches us. Now, in chapter 5, turn there with me. He once again addresses the priests. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Hear this, O priests, and take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment. Why? Because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. It's a way of him saying these are the areas where you are. and This is where people would, would snare animals or, uh, animals or birds in particular. And so you put out this net and you're snaring the people. So he says, there's going to be judgment coming for this. The, re, uh, the revolters are deeply involved in the slaughter. And there's that story of the priests that were even involved at one point of the killing of the people coming to worship. Though I rebuke them all, I know Ephraim and, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit, hol- uh, you commit harlotry and Israel is, a, is defiled as a result. So once again, if we are going to play games with the world... We invite God and his, his wrath and his judgment. Again, when I see the things being done in the name of Christianity, I wonder how long, oh God, before, before we are judged. Now, some of you guys may or may not have noticed, but if you, how many of you have ever been to Washington, D.C.? Ever toured through there? Okay, did you get to see the, uh, the National Cathedral? Anybody ever tour the National Cathedral? It's an impressive building. It's an Anglican. It's, it's amazing. I visited it. I've been in it. I've been up on like the second or third floor. And you can see it's one of the higher places in Washington. And you can see down into the town. But that was a place in a church that is supposed to be known by the name of God where they hosted an imam and prayer before Allah. And Allah was praised in the National Cathedral in D.C. People will say, well... What's the big deal? Isn't the God of the Quran the same God of the Bible? You ask the Muslims that. They will tell you that you as a Christian are an idolater because you worship three gods. They will, sell the, they will say that there are two monotheisms on the planet, they and the Jews, and they're trying to kill the Jews. Interesting. What we saw was blasphemy in the house of God. And it is not unprecedented. It happened here. We're repeating the same things as what I'm trying to get across, if you haven't noticed. I have a problem with communication. Let the word do it for me. We see the repeating of this. Now, I thank God we are, we are here assembled because we get a chance to study through the word of God every week. I love it that I'm listening to your, uh, to, uh, to your announcements. Hey, man, you guys have your midweek on Thursdays. Thanksgiving's that night. Ah, well, we'll just cancel it for that night. No, no, we'll kick it back one night. 
Because we want to get together and, and teach the Word of God. Why allow a holiday to get in the way of teaching the Word? Let's just find an alternative. Thank God for that. But I just want you to know that that is unusual, giving God a place at the table every time that we meet, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. How many of you have never visited a church other than a Calvary chapel? Really, you guys have all visited other churches. Do you then realize just how unique what happens here is? How unusual it is? Now me, I grew up a Catholic. And I came into Calvary Chapel, Cyprus, 30 years ago, and I thought this is what Protestants do. Oh my gosh, was I wrong. No, this is what those weird Calvary Chapel people do. They actually believe that the Word of God is relevant and speaks to our time. Now, unfortunately, I was talking with X and a few of the guys who was here for the pastor's thing. Here's what I see happening in some Calvary chapels. It used to be back in the day that people would walk in and they'd take a look around at the people in the pews at Calvary Chapel and think, oh my gosh, what is up with these people? And then they would see what goes on in the church and they'd say, I've never seen anything like that. And it used to be we'd say, yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Now there is a school of thought, and I believe that it has to do with this youthfulness that was the downfall of the North, when people will come in and say, I've never seen anything like that. And they're saying, yeah, we're trying to change that. I believe that that is beginning to happen. We are trying to be more relevant to the culture. And the unfortunate thing about that, if you ever want to see what that looks like, it's called Corinth. Paul wrote about it. The, the world had infiltrated the church at Corinth, and Paul had to correct it because it was carnal and it was diseased and it needed correction. And see, it's funny that we just seem to be going in that direction. It's a bizarre thing to behold. God is holy. God is pure. Chapter 7, verse 13 tells us them this. And I know this is just big bites, big volumes of the book. There's 14 chapters here. I'm just going over the major themes of this and trying to make application to the church. Verse 13 says, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Okay, there is Assyria coming towards them. And rather than running to the Lord, they flee from the Assyrians and they flee from the protection of the Lord as well. They are on their own. And history records that they were taken whole. So, destruction to them because, why? Because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeem them, yet they have spoken lies against me. I'm the one who brought them here and they lie about me. Now, that tells you about the condition of the heart. So this is what takes place. And then it says, they've spoken lies against me, verse 14. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. The point was, it all is going to happen. He's talking about it in future times. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be taken away to, to, um, you're going to, be taken away to Assyria and you will cry and you'll just... Moan for the days of old when you used to have the things. But their crying will be about what they have lost and not the God that they had offended that they could come back to him. This is what the condition of it was. Look at verse uh, verse 15. They assembled together for grain and for new wine and they rebelled against me. They did their religious things. But in their own strength, in their rejection of me, he says, though I disciplined them and strengthened their arms, yet they devised evil against me. They returned, but they did not return to the Most High. 
They are like the treacherous bow. That's the bow that can't shoot straight. The treacherous bow. And uh, princes, they will fall by the, by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. They shall be to them derision in the land of Egypt. Now, that is mocking. Egypt is going to say, yeah, so you guys left away from us and God did all that stuff to us at the Red Sea. Now look at you. There is nothing worse than having the world mock you. What a sad thing that is when the people of God have done something offensive enough that the world can make fun of you. How dare we ever bring that blight on the, on the, the, the life and the character and the person of God. So let it be a warning to us. Our God is perfect and holy and wonderful. He is forgiving. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is all those things. But he is also perfect. He is a judge, and he is just. And his justice will not remain unanswered forever. So it goes on. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Look at what it says. Set the trumpet to your mouth, which is a way of saying, sound the trumpet, because here comes Assyria. Now, again, those of you who have visited Israel, if you've stood on the northern parts of the Golan Heights, and if, you, if you're there and you've seen it, track with me on this. But if you're standing on the Golan Heights at its northernmost part, and then there's that big flat area, and you're looking towards Lebanon here, and you're looking out towards Damascus, and Syria lays out this way, and way out there in the distance is Mount Hermon, that big flat valley is where all the nations would come as they came into Israel. Because you're not going to go over the Golan Heights. You don't try to invade going over a mountain. And if you come in the lowlands of where the, the Jordan River is, you've got to go down a valley to come up a valley. You're better to take the extra route and then go from the north. It's all flat land and you could bring a big, big army. Can you imagine if you've been to Dan... You can see an army. If they were thousands, tens of thousands of men, you would see them from miles away coming in your direction. And that's how this went down. Assyria comes in. Sound the trumpet. Let them know that they're on the way. And so he says, He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they transgressed my covenant. That's the reason that they're coming. If they had ever tried to come against them, if, if Israel was in the right place, they wouldn't have seen the light of day. How do we know that? The same guys came up against Jerusalem. And those two southern tribes, what happened? Sennacherib and all that stuff. Hey, you know, basically holding the skulls of all the kings. Look at what we did to the other guys that said their God was going to save. And what makes you think that yours will? Don't believe Hezekiah. Don't believe Isaiah. Your God can't save you like these guys' gods couldn't save them. You remember the story? And so what did they do? They took the threats, laid them out before God and said, God, look at what they've said about you. Now what's going to happen next, Lord? Their threats are real. And they can do everything that they said. And so they laid it before the Lord and they left it to him and went to bed that night. What did they see the next day when they woke up? One angel. 185,000 dead Assyrians right outside the, the temple. That's action. That's what happens when people will humble themselves, come before the Lord and say, God, what now? It's such a contrast of what happens when people will beseech the living God versus the ones who will pay him lip service. The things that he will do in the life. Amazing, amazing stuff. So, he'll come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. Why? Because they have trans transgressed my covenant and they have uh, rebelled against my law. And then Israel will cry to me, My God, we know you. 
Does that sound familiar? Think about Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do this? And it was all done in your name. What was Jesus' reply? I don't know you. You may do a bunch of stuff in my name, but there's no relationship here. These people, same thing. Hey, we know the Lord. So what did that do for him? Israel has rejected the good and the enemy will pursue after him. Pretty heavy stuff. They set up kings, but not by me. Remember, David was the king that God chose. What did they have the first time? Saul. Why? Because he was the biggest and the baddest guy. He looked like a king. He's taller than everybody else. But what happened when they wanted to get him? Hey, where's Saul? I don't know. He's hiding over there behind the barn. This man who had no real desire to be what God wanted him to be. And he had told the, the nation. You can read it, 1 Samuel 8. They knew that they were going to be getting a guy that wasn't good. And Samuel warned them. They said, yeah, but we want to be like all the other people. Now, when God picked them, the next one, when it was David, right? The one that God had appointed. Remember? All the sons of Jesse, all, what, 10 of them first? And then Samuel said, none of these guys are the guy. Don't you have any other kids? Yeah, I got one left, but he's out in the field with the sheep. He's the runt of the litter. That's not your guy. Bring him here anyway. So he did. What happens when Samuel sees David? You're the guy. So God chose the one that, as Samuel said, God looks at the inside, not the outside. You picked the outside, Saul. He was the biggest and the baddest, and he was one of the worst. And then David, tender towards those things of God, with all of his faults, when asked, he said, one thing have I desired, that will I seek after. What is it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's the measure of a man, the measure of a woman. To know that we are, yes, limited, and we have all of our mistakes and our shortcomings and all the rest. But is our desire to love and to serve the Lord with a purity of heart? Because that's what's going to be the difference between the person that walks in victory versus the person that walks in religion. Big difference between the two. And you wouldn't know the difference if you watched them walking into a church. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and their gold, they made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. So how long until they attain to innocence? What a sad statement. When is it going to be till I can have a relationship of innocence with them again? Do you see the heart of God in this? Because if you ask people, they just think, oh, that Old Testament God, he's always killing people. And, you know, it's amazing anybody survived. Look at how he talks to them. When will it be when you'll return to your innocence? This is what God desires. Innocence in the heart of the people. For from Israel is even this. A workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria will be broken into pieces. God is going to judge all of these things. Now fast forward to chapter 9. And look at verse 5 with me. And i got to start wrapping up here soon. <laughs> You're probably happy about that. Man, I, I feel so depressed listening to all this stuff. Just judgment. It gets better. It is supposed to be a warning, though. It really is. It's supposed to get our attention. 
Verse 5. What will you do in that appointed day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? Remember, he's already talking. You're in Assyria. You're going to know when the days of your feasts are because you're going to have your calendar on the wall. You're going to know that this is the time for tabernacles. You know that this is the time for Passover. You'll know the times of the years, but what are you going to do? Because now you've been taken from the place where you can freely do that. And it's because you have rejected. Now you can't even do your religious things. So he says, what will you do in the appointed day? And in the day of the feast of the Lord, for indeed you are gone because of destruction. They are gone because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns will be in in their tents. The days of punishment have come and the days of recompense have come. And Israel knows. Exclamation point. Now here's one of the things. This is a very pivotal verse. Because, you know, I listen to your pastor. We talk a lot. I know what he teaches over this pulpit. I know that, and, and I don't believe in there's the modern day prophets as though there's some kind of brand new anointing that God has put on people. But a prophet is a person that speaks of the oracles of God and he will caution according to the word of God. Xavier, in that way, does the work of a prophet. He does the work of a watchman. If you want to know what a watchman looks like, Ezekiel 33, read it for yourself. I see that your pastor is like the prophet. I see that your pastor does those kind of things by way of warning the flock of the impending danger that is coming if we are unaware. But I thank God that your pastor is on guard and he is always at all times warning you. Now again, we don't exalt the man. He's just Xavier. He puts his tunic on one arm at a time like the rest of us, right? Do you guys wear tunics? Yeah, it's intended to be a weird, silly joke. But he's just like anyone else. He's just the man that God has called to be the pastor at Pasadena. And he's faithful to the word of God. That's the only thing that makes him any different than any of the rest of us. He's the one that God has put in this place. But he's just a man, just like any of the rest of us who pastor. We're privileged to do what what God calls us to do. But when it comes to these kind of things, look at what it says. Israel knows these things, that the judgment's coming. But what do they say of the people that are warning And this is what people would say about Xavier. Oh, he's always barking about something. Nothing's ever good enough. All that we ever hear is what he's against and never what he's for. Have you ever heard those things? Hey, let me ask a question. If you are for something, are you not by definition against everything that's not it? Yeah? If I'm going to say I'm for the word of God, well, then there are people that are not for the word of God. So, okay, there you go. I'm for the word of God. Let's just go home. Look at what they say. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane. There are people that say that about Xavier. Or any pastor that will warn the flock. Oh, those guys are nuts. They're just crazy. They're always talking about what's wrong. They're never talking about what's right. Hey, Jesus is right. And he's talking about him all the time. And if there's stuff that's coming into the church that has no business being there, he's going to call it out. He always will. That's why he and I get along so well, because I'm the same way back home. That's why I love having him over, and you know we've had him out. He's come and spoke at our church. And I, I am so glad to have people like him say, you know, if, if Xavier's there, I'm not worried about what he's saying. Now, he may not feel the same way knowing that I'm here, but I'm totally comfortable having him come and speak at our pulpit, because I know he's not going to say anything that I wouldn't agree with. We're like-minded. In fact, we were last night in the book of Philippians back home. And you know where Paul says that Timothy is like-minded to me? 
in the book of Philippians where he says Timothy is like-minded. It's in chapter 2, I think, verse 20. That word like-minded, it's only used there in all of the New Testament. And it means this. It's a hyphenated Greek word, isos suke. Those two words put together. Um, and what it means is that we are of the same soul. What a cool way of describing somebody. We share a common soul as far as our view of everything. And I look at your pastor and think, now he may not want to claim this, but I claim it of him. We're like-minded. We are of the same soul when it comes to this. I'm thankful for him. Okay, enough about that. Make sure you play the tape for him because I'm, you know. (laughs) Kidding, really. Seriously, I'm kidding. So, here's what they say. The prophet's a fool. The spiritual man is insane. Why? Because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God. That's him saying of Hosea. He's, he's the one, the only one that's listening to the voice of God. And yet the people who are hearing are saying he's nuts. He's insane. He's a fool. Well, that's an easy way to dismiss the message when you try to shoot the messenger. But he was the only one hearing God at this point. That's why God sent him. So it goes on and it says in verse 9, They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. It's pretty heavy stuff. So it's not as though this is not a repeating thing. Last couple of verses and then we will conclude for the evening. Chapter 10. Let's look there. Just a couple of verses here. And here's what I want to notice again. If we haven't already caught it, there's a lot of things where he's saying, look, I'm warning you, but I'm speaking as though this is already a completed thing because God knew what their reply was going to be. They didn't turn their heart back to him. So he knew how this was going to turn out. But even in all of the judgment that we've read about, notice God, even at this point, still entreating them. And so you might say, well, if God already knew that he was going to do this, why would he warn them? So that they would not have an excuse. Oh, well, we would have got our act right if you'd have just told us. So he would have pointed and said, I sent Hosea. You said he was a fool and you said that he was insane. And you wouldn't listen to him. Look at what he says here. Pretty amazing stuff in verse 12. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground. That's the heart. It's so compacted, it's had water on it and people stepped on it. We all know what that, that, you know, that ground is like. It needs to be broken up so that the soil can be loosened and things can grow in it. So he says, break up the fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. That idea of until. This is what should be taking place. But look at right there in verse 13. But instead you've plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Why? Because you trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall arise from among your people and all, will, uh, and all your fortresses will be plundered. That's what ended up becoming of them. Why? Because they trusted in all the things, their own understanding, their own, we've got this all figured out. But what does the scripture say about that in Proverbs? Don't lean on your own understanding. Why? What should you do instead? Acknowledge the Lord. He will what? Direct your paths. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and he will direct your paths. So, verse, or chapter 11. A couple of verses here and then I'll, I'll close with the end of chapter 14 because it's, it's of great comfort. In chapter 11, it tells us this in verse 5. 
He shall not return to the land of Egypt, speaking about the people, but rather the Assyrian is going to be his king. They're not going to go back to the place that I had delivered them from the last time, their bondage in Egypt. Instead, they're going to be absorbed into Assyria. Why? Because they refuse to repent. Now, here's the biggest problem that I see probably in the church of of any one particular thing. There's no call to repentance in the church. Why? Because it's going to offend people. And because it assumes a few things. It assumes that there is sin that has come into your life. And nobody wants to talk about that. I can guarantee you, if you, and well, X does it too. If you put me in Lakewood Church there in Texas, in Joel Osteen's church, and said, hey, Joel, why don't you step aside for just a second? I got a couple of things to say. If I started talking about sin and their need for repentance and their wickedness and all the rest, I'd empty that place out in a heartbeat. Because they're not used to hearing it. That's what a prophet would say to them. And we'd be able to say, look, this isn't me just speaking. Let me take you to the Word of God because it talks about it all the time. Now we have nobody that wants to hear about repentance because don't you tell me that I'm wrong. Don't judge, lest ye be judged. Don't you read Matthew 7? Well, sure I do. But I also know that if we're not supposed to say what's right and wrong, then take everything that Paul ever wrote and chuck it in the trash. Because he told us what we're supposed to do and what's expected of us. And when Jesus said, these things I command you, he said that a number of times. Take those out too, because that means you're supposed to do something. And if you don't do it, then it means that there's going to be a comeuppance for it. Nobody wants to hear about that. Repentance implies that we know that we have done something that has run afoul of God. Do you know that repentance, we hear it all the time, means to turn away. Well, let's make it a little bit more than that. Because it is a little bit more than that. It means that we're embracing something that we have to turn away from. Now, how often is it that we know that we see something in Scripture that says, I want you to do this, and we're still holding on to it like our life depends on it. And Jesus says, I want you to let go of it. I want you to turn in the total opposite way and embrace me. That's what repentance is. Because that means I'm not going to keep one hand here and then hold on to him with the other. That's not repentance. That's wishy-washy. That's trying to live in the world and live with him, and you can't do both. I refuse and I reject what I was and what used to be important to me. You want to know what that looks like? Read Philippians. Those things that used to be gained to me. Look at what Paul said. I was stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, according to the law, Pharisee, according to the zeal that that should be in a person. Man, I was killing people in the church. I did all these things to stand above my peers. And what ended up happening with that? He says, I've counted all those things lost that I might gain Christ. And what? Be found in him, not having the righteousness that comes by my efforts or by the law, but rather that which comes by faith. See, this is what God is calling us to. Leave aside the things that the world tries to entice us with. Walk with him in a place of integrity and truth. These people did not do it. They didn't even have the desire to want to repent. When you read what Jeremiah says about the southern tribes, they forgot how to blush. How messed up must you be that you don't even see that what you're doing causes you to be embarrassed? Well, it was that way in the, in the uh, north as well. So look at what it says. Because, verse 5, they, did, they refused to repent. And so the sword will slash in, the, in his cities, devour the districts, consume them. Why? Because of their own counsels, my people are bent on backsliding from me. Are you catching that phrase? They commit themselves to backsliding. It's what they want to do. 
Their desire is to backslide. Now, if you ever start to think that you're even getting remotely close to that, repent. God, this is not pleasing to you, so it should never be pleasing to me. Break my heart. Make me like you. Draw me closer to you. I don't want to have anything to do with this world. I want to be dead to it. Romans chapter 6, right? It's all about deadness to this world and deadness to sin. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. All those former things, they are to be gone away. Look at Paul. Great example. Chapter 2 of Philippians. Gives you all of his pedigree and said those things that used to be. It's actually chapter 3. I'm sorry. All those things that used to be important to me, they are gone. And I have gained Jesus instead of those things. We should all be able to say the same things because we don't want to be here where they are. Though, look at what he says in the second part of verse 7. This is tragic. Though they call to the Most High, none of them, none at all will exalt him. Wow. Calling on the name of of the Lord with no power. They don't lift him up. They don't exalt him. He's not holy. He's not sacred to them. They just blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Jesus, God, all that stuff. I hear people talk about, and they, my pastor had a pet peeve. And when he told me what his pet peeves were, they became mine. Does X do that with you? Does the stuff that drives him nuts that he tells you about, does it start to drive you nuts too? Does that happen to you? A simple nod of your head would work if it does. Okay, thank you. My pastor, he said, look, I don't, even though sometimes you'll see it in, in the scripture, even if it was said where the Bible would say Christ instead of Jesus, he would usually just say Jesus. Because everybody talks about Christ. I'm a Christ follower. Great, what does that mean? Well, I do this and I do that. Oh, no, no, no. Christ followers are not about what they do. Christ followers are about what they've learned from him. It's about their relationship. They follow him. They hear his voice. John chapter 10. They would never follow after another. So define your terms. Which Christ are we talking about? I'd much rather say Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. The one from Nazareth. The one that healed the sick and raised the dead. Because I'm one of them. I was dead in my sin and trespass, but I have been made alive in Christ. Jesus. The Messiah. The Lord. Cool stuff, yeah? Last one. Found in chapter 14. And uh, I will go take one little side trip at the end of this to Deuteronomy, and I should be able to end on time. I got to the bottom of the hour, right? That's what it is? 8.30? Oh, I'm, I'm dialed in, man. I got five minutes. All right. <laughs> Chapter 14. Verse 1 says this, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. Hey, wait a minute. I thought it was all about judgment. Well, it is if the people are unwilling to take his entreaty to return. But I want to recognize this tells me about the nature of God. The world wants to tell me that he's just always angry and looking to wipe people out. And I used to believe that. I may have, I may have fessed up when I said it when I was here the last time. But my view was that God was always just really angry and waiting to wipe people out. So what do you do? Blend in with the crowd. Don't stand out. Don't be as bad as that guy over there and you'll be all right. Seriously, this is my view of him. So much so that when I was out doing my things with my friends and all the worldliness that we used to be in, I, I consciously would look at, the, at my watch and say, is it Sunday morning yet? Because God's watching. I need to stop doing what I'm doing. Now, 
I never would stop doing what I was doing, but it's only the thought that counts, and God will give you credit for that, won't he? I mean, he deals on credit, doesn't he? That was my silly view of God. I didn't understand even the most remote portion of his holiness and his graciousness and his mercy and his love. God is saying, I don't want your religion. I want your life. I want your heart. I want you to offer yourself to me, living sacrifice. I want you to be holy and acceptable to me. That's my reasonable service. When I came to know the true and living God, I understood that for the first time in my life, because I realized he's not angry, but he is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. He is loving. And he is patient. Thank God for his patience. Verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. So when you're coming before the Lord, have something to say. If it means acknowledging what needs to be acknowledged, God, I've fallen short. I've made mistakes. I've done this and I've done that. See, the caution to them was, look, don't come before the Lord with lip service. Come with words, because words have an intent behind them. Make sure that what you say is intentional. When you come before the Lord in prayer, when you acknowledge him, acknowledge him for his holiness. And when you are acknowledging the things that you've done, be purposeful about it. Receive us graciously, for we offer the sacrifice of our lips. And then notice this, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the works of our hands that you are our gods. For in, your, um, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. Once again, I find such comfort in this because this has never really taken place since. And look at the last verse in this entire book. Look at what it says. Who is wise? Then let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Does the word of God cause a person to stumble? If it does, then they need to reevaluate their walk with the Lord and not ignore those things. If the word of God has a work in your heart at all times that draws you closer to him, even if you might find that those words are telling you about your mistakes and your error, but if they draw you closer, good, your heart is tender towards those things and the Spirit is working in you. If you find yourself on the fence with these things, then I'm just going to ask you as we close tonight, they, you, know, you know the people around here that are in leadership, go to them in prayer and say, you know, there's times when the Word of God put to my heart just bounces right off because it's so hard. Just know that God softens the heart of the person that comes to him and asks for it. God, my heart is like stone. Would you break it? Would you make it pliable and soft again that I may hear your voice, that I could hear your word and that you would have your way in me? I want to close with this. Deuteronomy 6, and uh, this will be the last thing that we look at tonight. And it's a reminder. Again, when you see God writing to Israel, he means Israel. When he's writing to the people of the land, he means the land. When he makes a promise to them, he means to make the promise to them. 
if it demonstrates something about his nature and his character, then you can make an application to yourself, like we've done with Hosea. But this was written to Israel, always was, always will be, and it is a historical footnote. This took place, and God is telling them why it happened. But we can learn, we can glean things from what we see in the Scripture, as we can with Deuteronomy. Now, you're going to notice that this in the first few verses of chapter 6 is where we get the Shema. And the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Right? The Lord, the Lord your God is one. Right? We've, we've heard that before. Now, look a little bit further because here is where they ran afoul. And this is right when God first brought them into the land. Chapter 6, verse 10 says this, And show it, so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And when you have eaten and you are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Application to the church. Everything about us being saved is based on everything that he's done. He built the houses, he dug the wells, he planted the vineyards. We have just been brought into all of those things. Let us not become complacent in our salvation, but let us make sure that we are attentive to the walk that we have with the Lord every single day because there is a danger that we will forget the God who took us. And then look at what he says. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you will serve him, and you will take oaths in his name. You shall not go after the other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. Church, we are being asked to compromise by the church as a whole. We are being asked to compromise the word of God. We are asked to ease up and be a little bit easier on things, and make more provision for grace, more room for this theory and for that theory, and we don't do it. I know X won't put up with it. Praise God for that. As far as a Calvary Chapel pastor to another Calvary Chapel fellowship, I want to just be praying for our leadership within our movement, that we would stay the course. Chuck laid down a great, a great model for church. My pastor passed it along to me. And he went to be with the Lord about four years ago, a little bit more than that. We have men that have given us a great model. You have one in your pastor. He's been here with you, what, 30 plus years? Follow. Walk as he lays it out in the word. You have great, you have a great fellowship here. Thank you for having me. What a joy to have been with you. Can I ask you to stand? We're going to close with a, with a final song. And I'm going to pray. So let me pray and then uh, we'll finish this song. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. So grateful for your word. We thank you that it does put its finger right in the middle of our heart. And you expect of us great things, but you wish to accomplish those in us. We need to be the willing vessel. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would glorify yourself in us. And Lord, if there is any waywardness in us at all, God, I pray that you would cast it from us, that we would acknowledge things. We would come to you with words. We would come to you to be restored. So we thank you. We give you praise. We give you honor in a world that is filled with compromise, in a church that is filled with compromise as well. May we hold fast the word of truth. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.